Welcome to our ecological, anti-fossil and mildly theoretical podcast, EcoPod, created by a group of international students at the Center for Development and the Environment. My name is Nina Vitoshek, and with me in the studio is three proud RNNS grant holders at the Center for Development and the Environment, and they include... My name is Martina Mersolova. I'm originally from Slovakia. My name is Aleksandru Prodan. I'm from Romania, and I'm a student at, in modern international and transnational history. My name is Shayan, and I'm from Iran. Now, the theme of our podcast is Apocalypse Now, question mark. You ask me to ask question marks. Okay, fine, I might make the question mark. Apocalypse Now is the time to save the planet, or even better, rush against time, which sounds dramatic. So, Apocalypse Now, rush against time. Now, this is the choice that you've made as a topic which is uh, what you, which you're obsessing about. And I wonder why you've decided to broach this issue and this question. Uh, if you can explain it briefly. Why is the rush against time? Are you really so preoccupied with this rush against time in the uh, times when everybody is obsessing about corona crisis? Yeah, fair enough. Um, I guess to begin with, um, the, the topic came about because a lot of the discourse um, around the climate crisis is about this like moving goalpost of we have 10 years left, we have 12 years left. right? You can specifically think of Al Gore, this documentary when he released it, I believe it was in 2006, where he said, we only have 10 years left, you know, and then, you know, 2016 comes around and we're all still alive. And then 2018, the IPCC report comes out of you only have 12 years left, right? And then a lot of the narrative and discourse and the activities, um, media coverage, etc., is framed around those goalposts, which, um, you know, I don't think is very effective or helpful uh, in the broader picture. Um, helpful or effective is one question. The other question is, whose time are we following so that would be my um, kind of pathway into into the issue of temporality. Um, how much is temporality that we're thinking about, whether in eco-critical terms of saving the planet, um, of doomsday um, device or um, narrative, or even within market uh, market logic? Um, whose time are we following, and is it the same time? And how much is such time flattening? Oh, that was very philosophical. I am a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> Self-proclaimed philosopher. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I would say that I have here more uh, constructivist perspective on uh, why the rush come to be the main concept of our times. And I think to some extent this uh, uh, rush in terms of... Uh, uh, economy, it's mostly comes from the uh, concept of growth that we have after the uh, Second World War. Uh, I will try to dwell on this uh, subject later. In the but could you elaborate just a bit so that you will give us a teaser? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, it's uh, well s since we discuss about uh, rush uh, against time, and we usually say that we need to rush. We have things to do, we have another deadline in uh, 10 years, we need to reduce carbon footprint. And in all this narrative, we have this we. So the question that uh, leads me to uh, uh, growth is, uh, 
who is actually this we? Uh, it's, uh, it's a very complex and nuanced actor. And once we look into E and try to deconstruct it, we realize that actually there are different actors and uh, they are competing between them. And here is our rush. It's a very pertinent question. We, yes, who is we? Alex, um, when we were discussing this, you mentioned something along the lines of that maybe each country has their own future. Definitely. This ties, uh, I mean, it, I kind of thought of it now that you said the elusive we, and it ties a little bit into whose time are we following. Um, um, as a historian trying to uh, view these things, uh, so when this first we was created, and I think that this we, as we know it today, uh, appeared mostly in, uh, during the uh, Second World War, uh, when there was this uh, need for a uh, global uh, institution that would uh, really put uh, some issues on the global agenda. So we have UN. After we have after UN, we have a series of international organizations who say that they speak in the name of the global. But are they truly global? And uh, do and if we already have this we uh, at the uh, international organization level. Why do we still have this uh, climate crisis? Why it's not solvable? Yet? Yeah, I think that also extends uh, really interestingly into the rest of the political sphere, right? Because, for example, when whenever uh, there are you know expanded sanctions on Iran or more restrictions, the U.S. often speaks in the language of the international community, right? Which, as Chomsky often points out, is basically the U.S. and whoever uh, you know happens to agree with them at, at, the, at that moment. Um, and I think. You know, to, to add on to that and what you mentioned earlier with the growth paradigm um, and combining that with this time narrative, it's, you know, kind of almost becomes a rushing towards destruction. Um, you know, if you have, uh, go if you're going to continue with the growth paradigm and industrialism and progress and, you know, manufacturing, et cetera, so forth, uh, then you are, you know, effectively just pumping more into the atmosphere, which... Uh, you know, ultimately ends up having the vast majority of its effect on the people in the global south who had the least contribution to it, one. And not just that, but also the poorest people in the global south and the north uh, to a large extent, which also had the least effect on this to begin with. That would be... Um that would be, in a way, again, speaking for or against the elusiveness of we are trying to particularize the discourse a bit more. Um, but then the question, then the question is, what does um, eco-critical discourse or green discourse or environmental discourse do to particularize these issues? Or um, is it, in other, on the other words? Um, very much also along the lines of Greta Thunberg's um, uh, agenda, rushing us against time basically in the same way. What do, what do you guys think? Well, there is a we of the Poles who want to build more coal mines. That's it. They want carbon jobs. And this is the we of the Polish nation united around the authoritarian leader. And then there is the we of the progressive West, like the students here. And of course, we all agree, we are all green and we are, we are going into the renewable epoch, maybe. And then there is the we of China, which is very confusing because China is driving both the carbon brown locomotive and the green locomotive, right? So uh, it's very 
bewildering this week. And each of these countries uh, you've mentioned is living, as as Martina has said, uh, in its own we and it's in its own temporal bubble, so to speak. Now, how to join the bubbles? Is it possible at all to join this bubble and create one time for the whole planet? Yeah, so I guess there's there's two ways of looking at this, right? One, I think to begin with, is this narrative that was rolled out around half a century ago of, you know, how Eastern countries are going to catch up with the Western liberal democracies. And you have a couple of successful examples like South Korea and you have um, China to a large extent. But then, you know, at what cost did that come? I mean, the, it's it's not a uh, system or ideology that you can extend to the rest of the world because, you know, it's outside of the planetary boundaries by a large margin. So that becomes, uh, you know, one problem to begin with, uh, with this catching up narrative. So to add on your uh, question, Nina, uh, about these uh, different bubbles that of time that uh, join in a common one, uh, we succeeded at some point. Well, again, I mentioned we, but it's uh, really <laughs> important to distinguish here. But uh, let's use this we, we for a while. Uh, we succeeded to join this bubble in uh, early 1970s when... Uh, it was actually in the heart of the Western uh, neoliberal uh, economic uh, center, OECD, that uh, this idea of uh, a limited world with uh, limited resources appeared. Uh, it was Alexander King, the head of the uh, scientific department in OECD, who was one of the founder, uh, founders of the um, Club of Rome. Uh, and once again... Uh, we succeeded to do this in uh, the 90s. Uh, early 90s were uh, the time when uh, Western powers uh, were interested in the, uh, addressing the issue of uh, environmental protection. We have very interestingly the case of the United States who invest, invested in uh, Eastern uh, Europe and invested in the environmental reconstruction of Europe. But it's very interesting because... Uh, Many historians speak about uh, American empire, and after 1989, they tried to discover the subject of American imperialism. Is U.S. an empire? And if you think that in 1947, uh, United States uh, addressed Western Europe with this invitation to join an empire uh, voluntarily, of course, it's very it was it was very different from the Eastern Europe. Where, uh, which was occupied by Soviet troops, uh, maybe in the 1989 we have, through this uh, uh, help that the U.S. was um, giving Eastern Europe, the same uh, invitation to join the empire, of course, voluntarily. Because we have in the 1991 uh, Bush administration, which was a uh, Republican uh, uh, party uh, financed uh, the uh, regional environmental center in Eastern Europe with mm, I would say it's, it's interesting idea. if I understand correctly is there is there in a way almost always um, a higher good in uh, the attempt to join the empire um, or the global or the common, common bubble um, is there in a way I think my question could be asked differently, did uh, green discourse and green temporality, thinking about time from 
uh, from the from, from from the from the apocalypse now is it, is it now are we gonna are we gonna get overpopulated as we thought in seventies are we are we gonna die on on uh, on uh, um, carbon emissions in in about ten years um, are we gonna die on corona now um, is is this temporality this urgency um, vehemently medialized uh, in in rather global very common <laughs> particularized but very common space is it is it part of joining the empire is it is it in in a way i mean aren't we playing back into this elusive we if we if we if we say that uh is is it all this neoliberal uh interconnected um overdetermined synchronicity that that rules over us all and, and we simply need a reason good enough to to be part of it mm. well i'll try to answer your question to some extent um well the empire is definitely a big topic and you could find the empire in almost everything. Uh, it's just that there are good things about empire that are really bad things. And we know we're pretty familiar with the b bad things about the empire, but we don't are that familiar with the good things about the empire. Uh, maybe to some extent, this Western empire that we're discussing could offer a time, a timeline, uh, that well, it offers a timeline. Well, it offers... It, it posits a timeline. Um, it colonizes what timeline goes there. Second, second True, nest. But, <laughs> but you're onto something, I think, Alex, because I remember the famous joke that the difference between the Western capitalism and Eastern uh, communism was like a difference between a chair and an electric chair. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that... That gives you, <laughs> and I remember the Poles living under communism who wanted to declare the war on the United States of America and be bombed successfully. By the end, they always claimed that the Americans were bombing the wrong countries. Uh, they should have bombed Poland actually at that time. Um, but yeah, so there's on. the so there's the motivation to join the, the empire. Then there's the motivation to. Uh, accelerate time by 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 this competition of who bombs whom. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> so doomsday device uh, kind of comes back to destroy its own master. Um, where does this leave us in terms of? Uh, uh, yeah, I think. Yeah. I, well, I guess one interesting way to to look at this is through the lens of Sheldon Boland coined this term called the inverted totalitarianism. Right, and it's it's the fearlessness of the corporate state, right? And it's it's basically, if you look at uh, the modern American empire, right, it doesn't really function or operate like a traditional empire or like a traditional totalitarian state, um, it, where you have these vast multinational corporations, where the U.S. state is effectively protecting its interests domestically and abroad. Um, and I think that's that's one thing that we saw change, you know, from the post-Second World War U.S. to kind of the post-Cold War U.S. I have a new perspective for you, actually, and it's a perspective that comes from the previous RNS professor at Zoom, whose name is James Lovelock. He is now 101 years old, believe it or not. And uh, <laughs> he enjoys a reputation of environmental Cassandra and Old Testament prophet, more or less, right? It's a kind of a combination. And I remember I had an interview with James Lovelock in 2007. And this interview was published in Aftenposten. You can read it, actually, if you know Norwegian. And uh, he said that by 2100, um, 
80% of human life on Earth would perish uh, because of climate emergency. There was no time uh, to save the Earth, he was saying already in 2008. Um, he argued that, uh, you know, trying to save the Earth and, you know, reduce the CO2 emissions, uh, emissions sorry, uh, it was like actually trying to uh, cure uh, a patient uh, who has a kidney failure by uh, protracted dialysis, and that was hopeless. So... Um, we would have done so in 1960s, he claimed. Uh, and remember, he was a scientist from NASA who actually programmed the invention, an inventor who programmed inventions to, to, that went to Mars, the first expedition to Mars. So he, he knew both the uh, stuff on the Earth and on, on other planet, planets. And he, his prediction was as follows, that... Um, the climate uh, shift is going to happen uh, one way or the other. The tipping point was over. The age of drought, pandemic, you can find it in the interview, I swear to God. He said the age of drought, pandemic and environmentally induced wars is upon us and we can do nothing about it. This is interesting, isn't it? As a, as a matter of fact, in his last book, by the way, Lovelock has cooked up a controversial, if not wicked, um, plan to save the Earth, which we can talk later about. But he is actually was actually extremely uh, disheartening uh, to all of us, even though he was a, the author who wrote the famous book, The Guy Hypothesis, where he claimed that the Earth is a living uh, a, a organism or like a living organism that is regulating itself. So we shouldn't be worried. But we were past the tipping point in 2008. So what's there to do? If he is right, let's say, if he, is, if he was right. We have to learn how to die in the Anthropocene, goes the book. Precisely. We have to, <laughs> we have to learn how to die in style. Yeah, I think, think stoicism has a lot of good wisdom to offer us <laughs> in our preparation for death. Maybe uh, we should learn how to enjoy life better. Uh, or how to enjoy love better, or even you know try to make the best out of the Corona crisis. I don't know, but I mean it. It, it, it is an interesting statement from a scientist, and what is interesting also that uh, the, another famous scientist, James Hansen, who also works for NASA, agreed with James Lovelock, which is even more disheartening. Yeah, um, I think what one of the aspects that a lot of this conversation about population misses, but the population bomb, um, also the work that came afterwards, is that it has it has elitist undertones, and it's not because you know vast majority of our problems isn't as a result of direct number of people who live on the planet. The footprint of people who live in North America and Western Europe is vastly more. Yeah, than but but those... Lovelock was not talking, Cheyenne. Lovelock was not, was not talking about population bomb. He was actually it was uh, it was uh, Ehrlich uh, uh, who was talking about the population right, bomb. Right, right. He was yeah, right yeah. and wrong. Yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah. it's no, quite so a controversial topic. Yeah. Uh, Lovelock was more associated with the you know by the environmentalists as their prophet, as their you know the the author of the Gaia hypothesis. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess kind of like speaking of a population more broadly. Um, yeah, okay. Just try, trying to integrate that. Um, and I, I mean, one of one of the most obvious ways to to change that would be to implement degrowth policies in the north. Uh, 
in the, yeah, while allowing uh, the global south to expand, basically, um, if 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 we want to maintain the current paradigm. How would you right? allow the global south to expand? What so, kind of so, incentives so, would you use? Right. So, well, there's two things to think about here, right? One narrative is, and this is, you know, coming out of like Steven Pinker and, uh, you know, Yuval Noah Harari, et cetera, where, you know, progress and growth and modernity are providing all these you know, res- resources and infrastructures and it's increasing people's quality of life, right? And, you know, one, one could discuss and debate on whether or not this is actually has anything to do with... Um, you know, living, living notions of living a good life. Um, but assuming that we do, and that's a big assumption to take, then we have to work towards equalizing this difference between the footprint and life of, of people living in the North and the South. And this would effectively have to come to the current institutions that we have in place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're back to the we, and we're back to posing <laughs> some standard onto, onto, onto something and someone. Yeah, Alex, you were saying. Uh, but again, Shan, here is actually the problem that uh, if uh, every Indian and Chinese would want a life like uh, North American or, uh, or Western European or even Eastern European, uh, it's not visible, it's not possible. Uh, creates polarization what i like about lovelock and you know uh, going back to uh, back to lovelock that you mentioned um and his uh, his theory of, of end being so close actually um it it is interesting uh what it does to psychology um in a way um this this notion of rupture of something something approaching that will change things as we know them um and and uh, and and the pressing reality of that the sense of urgency um nothing happened nothing and nothing happened again and and well, you also mentioned were, pandemics yeah but there were lots of summits uh, yeah so something so happened something happened there was lots something of happened. whining and dying very very much <laughs> happened from the elusive <laughs> we perspective but maybe it's the problem that we see these things as a crisis because uh I'll return to the uh, early 1970s when everything was good and uh, uh, the uh, uh, energy crisis was haven't yet happened. Uh, when usually you think that in times of crisis, humanity will uh, take a best shot and will uh, come with a solution. But if we look at the 1970s and we look at the post-2008, it's actually that Uh, uh, what we see is that in times of crisis, uh, humanity is not, not doing so well. In the uh, during the energy crisis, uh, what happened? We returned to uh, carbon economy. Uh, uh, everybody forgot about the limits to growth. It was only in the 90s that uh, they remembered. Oh, that there is this uh, Club of Rome and its report. Will pandemics do the same? Yeah. So my idea mm-hmm. here is maybe we should try to not view this as a crisis but more as something that is mm-hmm. that n- not necessarily needs urgency of course it needs urgency everything is urgency but we need to change the narrative uh in a way that okay, l- let's, let's let's take some time <laughs> let's like take that. some time <laughs> Of course, yeah. of course. The nail of <laughs> Rush against time is, is the most perfectly marketable yeah. idea of the century. Ten years, give me all <laughs> the trillions. <laughs> But really, here maybe it's just we need some time. Like, like it goes with uh, individual we. We need some time to think about life, uh, about what direction to, to choose, and maybe the same will go to the collective we, to the global we. Mm. 
I think what you're saying here connects well with, I mean, not a big fan of Milton Friedman, but um, he he talks about how, uh, you know, change, like significant change happens in times of crisis. And the ideas that are ultimately implemented through those times of crisis are uh, based on the, you know, ideas that are laying around. Uh, and, you know, I think now that we are in a crisis, we have to look around and see what are the ideas that are laying around because whatever paradigm comes after this, is not going to be a very radical departure from what is around us. I think that yeah. wh whether uh, my philosophy is simple. I don't uh, think that uh, the um, uh, the final diagnosis of of uh, J James Lovelock's uh, hypothesis or his uh, doomsday scenario, whether he's right or wrong, whether it matters at all, because even if he's right, I think that. Um, what the climate crisis has uh, shown us is that, A, we have misconceived the idea of well-being and the idea of what good life is about. Secondly, it has shown us the incredible gap between the people in the South and people in the North and the growing inequality. And it has also shown us that uh, nature can return, especially now during the COVID crisis. This is what struck us, right? That nature can return even to the most polluted rivers. Now, uh, that means that we shouldn't stop the struggle or trying to change the paradigm in spite of everything. Even if, if the end is coming tomorrow, I would still be fighting for, for uh, uh, saving the dignity of humans and the dignity of nature. I mean, that would be my starting point for the kind of philosophical uh, vision that I'm trying to forge for myself. That is very embedded. That is very, very much um, an, an expounding off uh, an expounding of a very personal um, um, embedded situated uh, perspective when we are able when you are able Nina to say that you would still fight for um, for for the betterment of humanity or um, Maybe betterment is a terrible word. Um, I like the betterment. You like the betterment? Yeah, yeah, good. Okay. Good. Good. Um, yeah, and for nature's and for nature's right. And for nature's right. Okay, I I like that because because um, there is this there is a big difference between between uh, between a certain end where we need to simply relate to it somehow, and and hope to survive, um, meaning if we do X, we will survive. If we do Y, we will die. We need to do X. We need to survive. And uh, I feel very much in Greta Thunberg's uh, uh, initiative. There is a whole lot of urgency, again, go going back to urgency, uh, which makes me constantly go back to thinking that Rush Against Time has a lot to do for for, for, for the marketability of the idea, where, where we need to achieve and obtain most possible and shortest possible time. Um, being being on, on one level able to say that we, we have this embedded uh, perspective as, as humans instead of just giving up on, on humans, I, I like that very much. Mm, yeah, I think one thing I, I liked about uh, what you just mentioned, Nina, and you added upon it, Martina, is, you know, it reminds me of this quote by a journalist I really appreciate, Chris Hedges, um, who often talks about, you know, how he doesn't fight fascists because he thinks he's going to win. He fights fascists because they're fascists. And I, I think that's, that's an interesting way, uh, or perhaps an imperative way of looking at this, as you, know, you, you ultimately do what is needed um, to the best of your capacity, and what comes, comes.
Um, yeah, so it's a very interesting idea because, uh, you know, what you're saying, uh, it's led me to another idea that maybe the solution is not uh, an economic one or a political one. It's more of a psychological, individual and uh, philosophical. Uh, in Because economists dominate our life since uh, late 1940s and uh, they penetrated everywhere, uh, politics, uh, even our education. Uh, it's, it's not a bad thing. There are, of course, many... I think it's quite economists. tragic. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm saying is maybe the right step here is to understand that we as individual don't need to rush for earning more and buying the second car and buying uh, I know, a larger house. We as but, individual, yeah. Yeah, of course, we as individual. But to know that uh, small is beautiful and small is enough. I remember when uh, I was uh, in my, uh, I think I was five or six years old. Uh, I have my first memories from back home. Uh, I was pretty happy with the life that I had. I mean, I didn't have much. I have, uh, I had like one pair of boots and that was everything I had. But I had nature around me. I had my grandmother's uh, yard where I could play. I had many kids, but now I moved in the West and I feel morally alienated. Yeah, I'm, uh, I have more material goods than before, but still, am I as happy as I was? I'm not sure. This is interesting, but uh, what you say uh, is interesting for two reasons. Why that you you're pointing to a moral or philosophical dimension and the consciousness that we need to change around certain things, uh, but I don't. I I wouldn't agree with you on one point, namely that we should retreat from politics. Uh, th there was this uh, wonderful series of lectures that Eva Jolie gave at the uh, Center for Development and, and the Environment, and she was actually telling us we should be more political animals fighting the power of, of big corporations and big multinationals because they are, you know, the, the true uh, destroyers of the earth. And I think the collusion between politicians and the big business now is something very, very dangerous, and the more literate we are uh, about this collusion, the better. So it's not just the change of consciousness and it's not, not, not just a moral revolution, but the moral revolution that in, invites action mm. on the ground. In other words, impossible situation. We need to be like kids and we need to be political animals. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, need to be, we need to be not naive kids, in other way. <laughs> How do we achieve that? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah. just to start finishing it off, um, I don't know if you know uh, Lovelock's new book, uh, which is called The Age of um, uh, uh, Novacen. It's called Novacen or Novacene, The Coming Age of Hyperintelligence. Now, in this book, uh, uh, Lovelock claims that the 300,000-year uh, Anthropocene era of Earth's human uh, domination is ending. This is what he says. The Novocene will start, um, he now reasons, because a superintelligence will recognize that all living tissue will be consumed by climate crisis and will act. I'm talking about the superintelligent, superintelligence, meaning AI. Artificial intelligence will, artificial intelligence will act with Gaia to keep the life going. What do you think of that? Sounds like a pretty big quantum leap. It is just to the 
is super yeah. intelligent yeah. of the AI. <laughs> you, 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 there's there's there are a few different ways of looking at this. You know, that's I mean, it's it's a fascinating argument to make. Um, but then you have futurists like Ray Kurzweil, uh, great artificial intelligence also, and he uh, argues that in the coming decades we are not going to have this separation of a biological being and a technological right. being. Right. We effectively have the technological singularity, right? Mm. At at which pace there, the ch- the the uh, you know, change is so rapid in the world that an unenhanced, quote unquote, human brain cannot comprehend, uh, you know, existence anymore. Uh, and that's that's another other way of looking at it. But, uh, you know, coming from that tradition, historically, I was really into it as a teenager. And I was studying to be, you know, artificial intelligence uh, scientist, engineer. Good I, Lord, well, <laughs> what are you know, doing it's, it's here? Quite tragic. <laughs> I, I, I am very afraid and skeptical of, of, of that entire paradigm now, especially seeing how, like, the market forces have tapped so deeply into all these digital infrastructures. When you look at surveillance capitalism, et cetera, I yeah. think we should fight back these stuff a bit like tooth and nail. That's why I said and I was careful to use the word betterment of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> wisely said, wisely said. Touche, um, Well, uh, your uh, point is uh, a very good one, Shane. Indeed, uh, the future could be a very uh, a dangerous one and a very dystopian one. But at the same time, what about the greatest humanity dream to conquer the stars? I mean, we need technology, and there are still many people who believe it. And uh, my childhood fantasy was uh, dominated by these ideas. And it, it, it's hard for me to let go of Star Wars. And uh, <laughs> 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 He's still living in Romania <laughs> and in Star Wars. Well, my I'm, dear friends, I think, okay. I think it's a beautiful dream, and uh, we just need to adapt it. We, we need to take into consideration... Uh, as many uh, ideologies as possible. And to I think my main concern with it is that it will come at the cost of people who will not benefit from it and cannot resist it. Um, and that's just an uncomfortable thought. But I, I really, I think it's, as a dream, it's really inspiring to think about. It's Maybe just it's a, a thinking experiment more than more than <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, actuality. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah. that I'm afraid that there will be no future otherwise. And we, uh, humanity without future, it's not humanity anymore. Um, I'm looking at Russia nowadays and I don't see a future that Russia has. Russia is linked to an image of itself from the past and wants to return to that image. But so are you all. You're linked to your so, boobs so and is the, So is, by the way, the United Kingdom of Boris Johnson. Uh, We're uh, all Eastern Utopians. And the great lives. America of Even as individuals, if you're to believe Freud. Yeah. I'm just believing that I have a plurality of ideas. Okay. And whatever, I'm considering our, both. whatever our conclusion, I wanted to thank you for your uh, wonderful debate. And I out of sudden remembered my favorite motto, which is from Ananes, believe it or not. And you know what his favorite motto was? It's never too late. There you are. <laughs> <laughs>